Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Shankleberg. And this is Carl Carlson. Hey, Carl. You know, just the other day, uh, I was talking to Kirk about a question we got that was, and I'm sure you've run into it, is uh, this, they, they did all this reliability work. They had a, a block diagram. They thought they were meeting their targets. They launched it, and now they're seeing all these failures that they didn't anticipate. So they were tempted to blame the customer abuse and stuff like that. And so bit of an email exchange. And then Kirk and I talked about that. And it's kind of relating your your program and testing and what you're designing into a product and how well you understand customers and all other stuff. And then a day later, I get another question, this one. And this one's more, I think, more subtle is, you know, that we, we've created a product, we launched it, and we're not getting any failures. You know, it's been a year and it's been pretty quiet. And the question underneath it with this exchange was, how do we celebrate when nothing happens? You know, okay. <laughs> when nothing, you know, it was kind of the gist of the question. And, and I've been in that situation a few times, but uh, I don't know. You know, I've, I'm quite sure, not to steal your thunder or anything here, Carl, that you've worked with clients and did programs and did stuff and, and it just worked. The product worked. Customers liked it. You know, oh, it's it such a great question because it's it's almost um, uh, I to use the analogy, but it's like a little bit like Zen. Uh, the the you can see what is there, and a failure is definitely there. Right. And what's not there is not as easy to see. And and so and and, and like uh, in in our pre chatting when we were talking about this, you think of uh, Deming's quote about the celebrating the the people who do it right the first time right as opposed to merely celebrating the people who fix the problem later and 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 yet the problem of course is how do you see that somebody does it right right and it's just an interesting question well the hard part i think with reliability is that i mean if somebody does everything right and they create customer enthusiasm for the product and it launches and it sells right on target or a little bit above target and, you know, and it just launches really well. Um, the marketing people are really good at making sure, you know, that they hit that one out, out of the park and they got it just right and all other good stuff. Um, you know, if you work with suppliers and they get great deals and the parts show up right on time and they work great and do all that stuff. Um, it's obvious. It's right there. If the program manager hits their time or budget or both, it's obvious right at the end of the project, right? Uh, the issue I have is that reliability, it takes a year or two or five before you know if you yeah. made it. And by that point, you know, that team's off working on the next generation or the generation two after that or something. And, it's, and we don't know if we did it right in at launch and that's not i don't think that's always true i think we could we have ways of uh, and a well-executed program will build lots of um, um confidence but not the statistical one one of that that we yeah we did the right things so and we're going to be all right but if that's a change that in the past you'd launch and then you'd have problems and then there's hero gets celebrated 
if that's the culture and then for whatever reason you did everything right, it's where's the hero? <laughs> you know? Yeah, Where, yeah. Where'd they go? How'd we do this? What comes to mind for me are milestones because the when we talk we're talking to a reliability community and we have feedback, everything from development stage, testing, uh, manufacturing, uh, launch, uh, first 30 days, first 90 days, first year, two mm -hmm. years, five years, 10 years, and more. Mm -hmm. And so there's different milestones. And so you think about everybody's seen the joy in a NASA launch, you know, you're, you're brought into the with the videos at the headquarters yep. and the people cheering when the when the uh, spacecraft gets to a certain you know successful up to a certain uh, number of seconds, right? And that's a milestone, but that doesn't mean that the uh, lunar vehicle or a Mars vehicle is going to land correctly. And right. then you, then you see the videos of when it lands correctly, and you see people cheering and it's landing. Yeah, uh, that doesn't mean it necessarily deploys correctly. And then a year later is actually taking the photographs that it's supposed to be doing. And so I think it's important to know where the milestones are and to celebrate the milestones. So, uh, but, but the fact that it launches correctly doesn't mean that it's going to be reliable. Right. Right. No, I agree. I'm, I'm thinking we're getting a little jaded, though, with NASA as they launched that big new telescope. And, you know, and had like oh, know, yeah, 300, yeah, 300 steps before it's actually you know, unfolds and does all these things that have never been done before kind of thing. And, and it just worked and everybody, eh, okay. Yeah. They, they landed oh, huh. on Mars. I mean, yeah. They did this. You do that. To, to me, I mean, I'm oh, sure yeah. it is to you because we know all the things that can go wrong. <laughs> uh, so it's amazing when it all happens uh, correctly like that oh, and it should be celebrated. Oh, and I'm sure there were some, but it just wasn't in the news. You had to go, I found little blurbs here and there about it you know, in, in science and sky and sky digest and other places like that. But it just wasn't captivating to the, to the world mm -hmm. or anything. It was like, yeah, they do that all the time, whatever. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's answer this question in a couple of ways. Uh, if the question is, if I understand the question right, is you're not seeing failures, should you, when do you celebrate? Uh, that's a good question. And, and, and if, if you're talking about launching, with no failures, then there's a time element. Let's talk, let's celebrate. We've been 30 days after a launch, and no failures so far, and and cert certainly that's a recognition. Yeah. Um, but everybody has to have their eyes open because it's only one step. Right. No, I I think the milestone idea gives you triggers and setting that expectation. It works even mm -hmm. better if you've got a here's the expected number and are we hitting them or not. Uh, yes, or better, or um, that you. I mean, you also have. If it's a culture of waiting till something disaster is there, and everybody's waiting to get pulled off their project and go solve stuff, then it's it's also part of. It's not just have some pizza and, and cheer it, or you know, put it in a presentation saying, "Hey, we're hitting our milestones, we're hitting our targets," you know, and you know. Sarah and Muhammad and and Julian over here all did a wonderful job in the design process. Um, if if you got to have all those pieces in place, I mean milestones are great, but if there's nothing to compare it against, yes, you know, so it, you have to have criteria that yeah. um, 
that are acceptable. Well, it also uh, takes milestones. It also means keeping track of, you know, we did an FMEA and we found these three things and now we don't see those in the field. Now that's a stretch for any FMEA program I've been involved with. Yes, you're right. <laughs> you know. Oh yeah, and and just to just to to muse on that for a minute, uh, people ask me all the time, uh, when do you know that the FMEA is done well? And of course, if you want to answer that from a feed from a from a, a data standpoint, you'd say, okay, well, uh, what's the product life? The product life's ten years. Well, you know mm -hmm. the FMEA is done well uh, after ten years. Now that's that's not a good answer because you're yeah. not going to wait ten years. So I use quality objectives and that tell me whether the FME has been constructed well. Mm -hmm. And those quality objectives are, are not trivial. They're not easy to make. And they describe a really good FMEA. And so I will assess when the FMEA is completed, the quality objectives, and that's long before the launch, long before the, mm -hmm. the testing and the, and the actual field history has been developed. But of course, you have to keep an eye on what's actually happening in the field. And if you're a really good and you want a gold star, then you can correlate that back to the FMEA. Yeah. And, and that, so part of it is, is setting realistic expectations and goals and targets and not fooling yourself by running evaluations and studies and an analysis that just gets the right number as opposed to, doing a really good FMEA or if you're doing an accelerated test, it's meaningful and, 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 you know, just, it actually does a decent job predicting what that failure mechanism is going to do. You got to do things right. What I, what I find is that as you go through the plan and then you know, this as well is that there's people responsible for executing those pieces of the, of a reliability plan. Right? There's somebody that going to convene that meeting or conduct the FMEA or, or design and analyze the, 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 the testing or whatever. And it's, I put the names in there, one, just as a planning process to make sure it's going. But then it's also, if one of the things that, like I had one program that they had this horrible problem of uh, infant mortalities and generate, you know, product after product, and they made an array of different products and they really said, we got to fix this. So we did a bunch of different things that they had never done before, but they wanted to learn how to do it along the way. So anyway, we kept names on all this stuff, which was something they hadn't done before because before everything was the project manager's job. His name was on everything. And like, no, you're not doing the FMEA, you know, Sarah is. Um, and so they called me back six months after this launch and they're all standing there and they go, um, we have a dilemma and it was, we don't know if our product brand is so bad that nobody's using our product. <laughs> we sold some, mm. but we don't know if they're being used. Uh, and he said, what do you mean? He says, well, nobody's called us with any problems. You know, no, there's no infant mortality going on here. And he says, well, what would you, you know, Sarah did that FMEA and you know, you did this and you did this and you did this that actually made a difference in, in solving those particular problems. And they went, oh, okay. You know, it was kind of a celebratory moment, but it was, it was they were more concerned that their customers had given up on them, 
which was well, really okay. kind of sad. No, I get it. That's a great that's a great story actually because the the you you want to know that when when you have that victory of no problems mm-hmm. during the certain period of time that's the infant mortality time, that would be good to make that data real clear. Yeah. And so it's probably worth a, a few phone calls to people that have purchased it and whatever you have to do to, to confirm it. But uh, what a wonderful uh, outcome. Uh, the, the other part of this story or the question is pre-launch. Mm-hmm. And I know the questioner was talking about launch, but let's talk for a minute about pre-launch. What if you test and don't have any problems? Does that tell you the product's good? Well, and, yeah. Or did you test yeah. the right thing? <laughs> you know, exactly. You, you test the thing that works, but not the things that don't work, you know? And and that's why I thought when you first brought it up, that's where I thought the, before I heard the post launch, I thought it was talking about the testing. So uh, let's explore that for a minute, because if you, if you run your tests and you don't have a problem, does that mean the product's good? And like you said, in your reaction, the answer is it depends. Yeah. Well, that was the original, the first question I talked to Kirk about is they, they, you know, they did DFR type stuff and they did their testing and they thought they were all good. They're hitting their targets, but they didn't account for the vibration or this or that. I mean, they weren't accounting for the things that created the infant mortality stuff. They were doing the, will it last 10 years? And they think they got that right. But they didn't pay attention to the manufacturing process, for example. Um, it wasn't part of their routine, so they didn't catch that. And that's a problem. Yeah. Is any test is it's you got to be very, very. And I, you run into this too. Is you see a, a test plan, and we're going to do a thousand hours of this and forty-five minutes of that, and we're going to do this. We're going to drop it five times, and I'm like, okay. So when you do all that stuff, what is it going to mean? What's the relationship exactly. to anything useful? <laughs> And there's a few dimensions to this because uh, very often companies or groups or labs will will do what is in the standards. Mm-hmm. And they, okay, so if we test to this standard, we're good. Right. Or if we test to this combination of standards, we're good. And I always teach, and I know you do the same thing, Fred, is that you have to comply with regulations and standards that are essentially required but that doesn't mean you're necessarily good enough. And you have to go the extra step of making sure that your product is good, irrespective of the standards. Right. And, and so it's a, it's a complex question. Uh, it's so important to understand uh, that the testing has to represent the actual usage or the, of course, if you're going into accelerated testing, then you're, then you're in certain multiples of the usage, but then you've got the science to bring you back. Right. And but either way, your your testing has to represent the field usage in some way. And it's not a no-brainer because the like you said in the case there's maybe vibration is omitted. Um, I like teams, and so I rely often on teams like in an FMEA. Uh, I want to have the right cross-functional team present. And then we can look at uh, the test plan to see if the particular fla- failure mode is going to be detected mm-hmm. by the current test plan or not. And and I rely heavily on the subject matter experts to say, you know what, 
we didn't consider vibration. Right. Or and we what about startup have. or what about this, you know, or this yeah. step or that step. But, you know, if we're doing it, this kind of test and it's not my favorite is we're going to do all this chamber testing, but we're not going to power it because that takes so much work. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I recall a project I worked on that related to our GPS system uh, nationwide. And the, of course you have satellites that are involved in controllers and everything. Mm -hmm. And, We've we tried to be thorough, and so uh, that's where you want to get brainstorm and say, well, what about what about mm -hmm. what about sunspots? What about this? What about that? And try to find what things could throw this thing off, and that's where humans get involved because I'm very concerned about uh, full automation, where you try to automate the process so right. well with models, and but the models may not represent. Uh, the reality well enough. Yeah. So um, that's a really deep question. Well, there's another aspect to this, though. There's another aspect mm -hmm. to this is, well, how do you celebrate it? Right? Um, okay. And you, and you know, I talk about, you know, make sure you ha you understand the value of each of these activities or methods we're using and where does it make a difference? And so use the FMEA example. We say, all right, our first five action items, we, we identified issues. We did the, you know, four of those. We found real design issues and we changed those things. A, a trick that I got taught years and years ago is go, well, what if even one of those four things didn't get caught by anything in our gauntlet and got to the field? How many products would have, you know, experienced the conditions that that failure mechanism would have showed up? And you can do a back of the envelope kind of thing. And I, I learned also about that time is you never use a, a nice round number. So if that if those four failures got to the field, it would cost us a million dollars. Nobody will believe that. But if you say $879,000, okay. <laughs> then they think you calculated it. In 27 cents. Right. You think mm -hmm. they calculated it. But, you know, do just a, a, a understanding what, what is the cost per failure or cost of a phone call to our call center. What is the actual cost mm -hmm. if that thing occurs? Get a rough estimate of, of well, what that nature of problem, how likely is that to occur in the field? And that takes a little bit of thinking and understanding the failure mechanism. And we do that with the occurrence rating, right? Kind of get a ballpark number for it and then say, all right, even if half of those actually occurred in the field, times our cost per failure, Yeah, there's a number. And uh, what does it mean? Mm -hmm. Right. There's what's actual, the impact? what's the actual avoided cost. And so you can put a dollar number against it um, of avoided issues. And, and th then you can get into life cycle budgeting right? and say, look, we've, we've, we predict we're going to um, miss out on these issues or avoid these issues. And that's going to cost save us this amount of money. Yeah. You could do the life cycle one where we fixed it early versus later. You can do mm -hmm. the, it reduced the chance of delaying the program because we would have caught it in this last round of beta testing right before we launch and ramp up this thing. That would have cost us a fortune to fix at that point because we'd have had, we'd been ramping up. You can do all those kind of things to connect it to something that that organization values you know is it time to market is it cost is it customer satisfaction or whatever but recognizing that you're hitting your reliability targets is nice recognizing that hitting the reliability targets means that your warranty re uh, costs are half of what they would have been if you hadn't solved it is money in the bank 
kind of thing. Yeah, and, and let, let's emphasize a few things because there's a lot of people that are new to reliability, and I hope there's a, an audience out there that are that are new as well as the old timers. Mm -hmm. And if you're new to reliability, there's some things to emphasize here on the testing side that I just want to bring up is, is uh, number one, and this in the old timers, I'm sure will be nodding here. It's so important where possible to test a failure, yeah. and because you can have um, you can calculate your your requirements and you can test to a a number or a bogey or a multiple or 1.2 lives or whatever you want to say it is and then truncate uh, but you don't know how far after that there might be failures and so you want to bias if possible to testing to failure and the second thing and you said the magic word there fred is failure mechanism because your tests need to exercise or represent the failure mechanisms that are in play uh, that that bring about the failure. And because if you miss failure mechanisms, and I'm talking everything from EMI to corrosion to fatigue, uh, if you miss the ones that are that are prevalent and that are that that you should be concerned about in your testing, then you won't get the results you need. And you might be happy right. to not have failures, but you're not going to represent what happens in the field. And I think one last point is that it's part of our, in order to get good feedback, you know, there's lots of things that have to be in place, including setting good stand or expectations or goals or objectives, milestones. It's a piece of it, a, a mechanism to gather and look at that data. Um, a side note is keep track of who did something new on that project. So you can go say, hey, you know, that was brilliant. Um, that really turned out well. And it, you know, a big part of the credit for how well this product went goes to the entire design team, of course, manufacturing team and our suppliers. But, you know, you did an excellent job of changing it so that we avoided all of those failures. You know, you recognize the, the fragility of the, of the rollers underneath this cart and beefed them up. And argued and won that you got the extra cost into the product to do that. And so you spent a dollar extra, you know, on parts count cost, and it saved us $487,000 in the first six months, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. But it has to be very specific and, and yes. not the reliability person get, doesn't get the credit. That's, I think, another key part of, of how to celebrate is make it part of the culture where other people that you may have influenced or convinced, but it's not your credit. You got to get other people to recognize that they get recognized when they do reliability stuff. Absolutely. Very good. Very well put because you've covered uh, a lot of ground there in that last uh, statement. The, <laughs> Sounds like a summary. Want huh? to be, well, it is a good summary. It's a, be very specific in your celebrations and feedback. This is true of everything from celebrations to, um, to, feedback on performance and uh, you name it. Mm -hmm. uh, but you've also said to uh, be specific and what was the second thing? You had a second well, point in there I was it's trying to it's, it's not the reliability person's yes, yes. celebration. It's not share their fault. The, share the joy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Spread it out. Yep. And, and it, it's a long-term, I mean, short-term is you're not beating your own drum. You're not, you know, egotistical or come across as is self-celebratory celebratory it's more important to get the culture of the organization to recognize the value of oh let's do a good fmea oh let's do yeah. the design for reliability let's do these steps and 
the recognition will reinforce people saying, yeah, I can do that because I, I, I got called out and in some way I got a bonus. I got called out. I got recognized. I was appreciated. Whatever is important to those people is make sure that they they get the benefit from it because they're the one that actually did the work. Yes, and they're the ones that you want to because what you recognize and celebrate you tend to get more of, right. and they're the ones you want to stimulate that desire to do more of the same kind of thing. Right, exactly. So one of the things we want to get more of is more questions, more comments and stuff like that. And we're running a little bit light. we got a few of them here in the last few episodes that the queue is dwindling. So I'm going to implore you as a listener to make a note when you get back to your desk or to a, a computer someplace, send us a, a, a comment or a question. You can do that on AscendoReliability.com slash go slash SOR. And you can leave a voice message. You could leave a written message there. Uh, Carl and I and the other hosts of the show are all on LinkedIn. And we have about pages that have contact forms. There's plenty of ways you can join the conversation. All right, Carl, thanks much. Uh, We'll talk to you again soon. Talk to you soon, Fred. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation. If you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes, or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.